The Apostle Paul founded the Corinthian church on his second missionary journey. And most of the Gentiles there who came to believe were heavily steeped in the pagan background and immorality of their culture. They had all this baggage, and so it took more time for them to grow. And that's why Paul ended up staying at the Corinthian church for a year and a half before he moved on. But even after he left the church, their immaturity still showed. Paul had received a report of theological and practical problems in the church And then the Corinthians themselves sent Paul a list of questions, questions they had that had been probably dividing them. And so Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians back to them in response, answering their questions and helping them grow. And that's why 1 Corinthians reads very much like a a Q&A letter, because it was. In response to their troubles and their questions, he addresses issues such as unity, immorality, marriage, liberty, worship, spiritual gifts, and the resurrection. Evidently, Paul believed a Q&A format was a pretty good way to, to handle some of the pressing teaching needs of the church. And here we are today at our church in the same spirit with a Q&A message. Every so often, I like to solicit your most pressing questions of Scripture and then answer them from the Scriptures before all to the benefit of the whole body. And so we're back at it today with the second part, making our way through your questions, the ones that you guys have submitted. And we have, as usual, a lot of ground to cover, so we're just going to get right into it. Now, I got you thinking about 1 Corinthians on purpose, though, because our first question is going to take us there in a big way. It's a question from 1 Corinthians. We might as well start with the biggest question for the day. And so let's, let's begin with this, this Q&A message First question submitted here was, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, should women wear head coverings in the church? Is this instruction cultural or timeless? Should women wear head coverings in the church? I have to say, I've been here about 10 years. This is my 14th Q&A message. And I'm honestly surprised this question has not come up before. It's taken so long for someone to ask this question, but finally we get the chance to address This important issue, somewhat controversial, but very important issue in the scriptures. If you're new to the church or you're unfamiliar with the book of 1 Corinthians, even the question might catch you off guard. Like, what does that even mean? But there is this one little passage in 1 Corinthians that seems to instruct women to wear head coverings in the church. That naturally leads to a lot of questions. You might first look around, you see most women not wearing head coverings any given Sunday, and you think, why not? Should women be wearing head coverings per this passage? If not, why not? Perhaps you can just easily write it off and say it was just cultural. But if you do that, how do you get off with saying this passage is just cultural while other passages on gender roles like women not teaching or being elders, that those are are, are not just cultural? Uh, How do you pick and choose? And that's why this question really matters so much. We want to get the scriptures right. We want to be consistent. We're not just trying to pick and choose according to our will, our preferences, our traditions. We just want to know what the word teaches. And we accept. If we're in the wrong, let us change. If we're in the right, let us explain. We just want to get the text right. So turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you haven't already. I could... Just give you the short answer, which is indeed that head coverings are cultural and not timeless. But without showing you why, 
the short answer honestly brings up more questions than it answers. And that's really not the point of these Q&A messages. That's not why I do these. I could give you a, a bullet point list of answers to all your questions. But I think you ask not just for the answer, but also for the explanation of the answer. This is Berean Bible Church after all. And I, I want you to see the truth for yourself always. You should, you, you should know in general what you believe and why you believe it. And so I think especially in this case, it's just not sufficient to give you the short answer. There's only one way through this, and that's just to walk through this medium-length passage, explain it in its original setting, and then determine, does this apply today? How much applies today? Let the text speak for itself. So needless to say, this is going to take most of our time, but it's just kind of the only way to do this. We have to walk through. So let's, let's start now, chapter 11. We can pick it up in verse 3 for the sake of time. He says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. And so here to start, Paul teaches that a man must have his head uncovered while praying or prophesying, but that a woman must have her head covered while praying or prophesying. Otherwise, she shames her head. And I can pretty much guarantee that immediately this strikes you as bizarre. If you've never encountered this, you're surely wondering, like, what is this saying? What does this mean? Well, it all starts in verse 3. Verse 3 is the main principle that governs the entire passage. And it's the principle of male headship. He says, I want you to understand. This is the main truth he's trying to get across to them in this passage. It has to do with the relationships of, of authority and submission in God's order. God made this world and he programmed it to reflect his own sense of order. And part of that order is seen in authority structures and submission structures, headship, the concept of headship. God, of course, is himself the ultimate head or authority over all things. That even includes the Messiah. That's why he says God is the head of the Christ. We know the Father and the Son are equal in divine essence, but they have different roles. The son is subordinate to the father. It's not a bad thing. It does not make the son unequal or inferior to the father. It's just part of the, the, the order of the Godhead itself. The same goes for Christ's headship over mankind, where he says Christ is the head of every man. Jesus is the God-man. He's the one mediator between God and man. And one day, every knee will bow in recognition of that fact. Jesus is our universal head. But the principle Paul is going to really run with, with the rest of this passage, has to do with that middle phrase where he says, and the man is the head of a woman. This is teaching male headship, and it's a pretty good parallel to what he says in Ephesians 5, 23 and 24, a classic passage. There he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. 
Ephesians 5, 23-24. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians of this very same teaching. This principle of male headship, we know, has nothing to do with intellect or worth or ability. Man and woman were equally made in God's image. And in many cases, the woman might be more intelligent or more able than the man. But God has simply delegated his authority to lead to the man. And we know our our culture hates even the mention of a woman's submission to her husband. But the fact that this relationship parallels that between God the Father and God the Son should instruct you. This is not a bad thing. This is part of the Trinity. And this should, uh, this is a way that God made humans to reflect the very existence of God himself. The wife should, therefore, happily and willingly submit herself under her husband's leadership. And the husband should likewise use his authority entirely for the benefit and the blessing of his wife. Not for his will, but for God's will and her will. All right, so this is the main principle of this entire passage. This is what Paul wants them to understand, the principle of headship. This is what must be upheld in the churches. Now, verses 4 through 6, he goes on to regulate how this principle is applied in their church by way of this custom. And this is where we get to head coverings. There's not a ton of data about head coverings in the ancient world. But this was a cultural custom that, that seems to have been adopted by the churches very early on. It involved women wearing a sort of veil or cloth over their heads. And it was just a symbol. It was a symbol of their subordination to their husbands. This practice did not come from the Lord, did not come from the apostles. But in this case, the Corinthians had adopted a cultural custom that was good because it reflected a truly biblical principle, namely male headship. And that's why Paul is going to argue positively for this custom that they should should carry on the custom. The fact, though, that Paul is even addressing this with the Corinthian church seems to clearly suggest that some women there were were bucking this trend, that they were throwing off their head coverings. And so Paul writes, to help them see in that day the implications of their actions and also to correct them. And that's what's behind his words in verses 4 through 6. Why is it wrong for a man to have his head covered while praying or prophesying? Why is it Wrong for a woman to have her head uncovered while praying or prophesying. Because in that day, by custom, that would communicate role reversal. The man would be communicating the abdication of his headship, and the woman would be communicating her rejection of submission. But as you know, God detests any rebellion against his order, his roles that he has programmed into humanity. And so for a woman to have her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, he says, is to disgrace her head. I think that's dual, both physical and metaphorical. She's disgracing headship, which is something that comes from God. This is the connection to having her head shaved. If you didn't know, even back in the Roman Empire, there was an early feminist movement. And some women would shave their heads. The only people who had shaved heads were prostitutes. But some women would shave their heads as a sign of their rejection of manhood. And Paul would say, we'll say later, a woman's hair is her glory. To shave it then really was a symbol of rejecting manhood and womanhood and really rejecting God. 
So for Corinthian women to go about praying or prophesying with their heads uncovered, purposely rejecting this custom of headship, Paul's point is that they might as well just go all the way and shave their heads and make their rebellion complete. And they weren't acting that much better than those who outright just hate God and hate his created order. Now, as a quick side note here, this is a complex passage because of all the side issues, but you'll notice how Paul limits this issue to while people are praying or prophesying. He doesn't say this is all the time. He says while praying or prophesying. Now, the gift of prophecy, whether that's foretelling or foretelling, as far as we know, was not uh, limited only to men. Women could have the gift of prophecy in the early church. But Paul does make crystal clear later, chapter 14, verse 34, that women were not permitted to prophesy in the church assembly. The use of the speaking gifts is an authoritative task. And while women may be truly gifted teachers, God gave such positions of authority to the men in the church. Again, with male headship. That's only consistent with what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. And here in chapter 11, Paul is not contradicting himself by referring to women praying or prophesying. Because you also note, he never says this is taking place in a corporate worship setting. This could simply refer to small group gatherings, prayer meetings, public witness, or women's ministry. Suffice it to say, whenever it is biblically appropriate for a woman to pray in public or prophesy in public, she must have her head covered. That's what he's saying. This head covering was an established symbol of headship and submission. It reflected God's order and it was accepted. And therefore, his point is that these women should not appear rebellious to God's order. That's not fitting for those in the church. All right, so we're getting into some teaching on biblical headship, the roles, submission, all which is reflected in this custom of head coverings. We need to keep going through these verses to, to, to carry on with understanding their meaning. Verses 7 through 10, Paul goes on to further argue why this custom should be kept. So let's keep going. Look at verse 7. He goes on and says, For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Here Paul is recalling the Genesis 2 creation account. Genesis 1, we learn that man and woman were equally created in the image of God. And they're truly equal in worth before the Lord. But there is a distinction in how they reflect the glory of God to the world based on their created order. That man and woman were made to reflect the majesty of God differently in a few ways. That's what Paul means when he says that the man is the the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. I think feminists would just choke hearing that. (laughs) But you have to appreciate what that means going back to Genesis 1 and 2. When you think back to creation, how did God make the man? God fashioned him directly from the dust of the ground. And God made man as the the pinnacle of, of his creation, more glorious than all inanimate creation, all the animal kingdom. Man was made to uniquely reflect the glory and majesty of God to the world 
based on his form, his intellect. Women equally share in that. But there is a sense of subordination in creation because how did God make Eve? He made her from the side of the man, as, as Paul mentions, that the woman was derived from the man. And she was made for man's sake to be a suitable helper for him, to help him fulfill God's commission to steward the earth. Again, this subordination does not have to do with personhood, intellect, emotion, will. Man and woman are equal. But the biggest differences God made between man and woman back then at creation was with form and function. They were made different in form. The woman's form was made softer, I think we can say. God smoothed out all the rough edges of Adam when he made Eve. But also her function was made different too. That she was to be a complement and a companion to the man. This does not denigrate women. And don't forget, in marriage, the two become one anyway. This is a partnership, a co-equal partnership, just with different functions, just like God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But in all, the point here that Paul is making is that from the beginning, God made man and woman equal but different. And part of the essence of that difference is headship. That's part of the functional difference God programmed into these two genders. And that's going to belong to the man. Therefore, verse 7, he says again, it's not right for the man to wear the symbol of submission on his head. He is the head in the relationship. And verse 10, therefore, it is right for a woman to wear the symbol of submission on her head. That's appropriate to her role. Verse 10, he says, therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. That's what head covering is. It's a symbol of authority. And therefore, it's appropriate given their created roles and distinctions. But as if this passage wasn't challenging enough, Paul has to just go in there and throw at the end of verse 10 this passing reference to the angels. Do you see that? Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Like, so far it was starting to make sense. Why does Paul complicate things by adding this random passing reference, nothing more said of it, because of the angels? Well, I think speaking of created beings, angels enter the discussion, really when you think about it, as the ultimate apex being. Here are these beings who are actually made with a greater majesty than man, yet they exist in perfect submission to their head, God Part of that submission involves serving us. Scripture says angels are ministering spirits sent for believers and they watch over the affairs of man. Luke 15, 10 tells us, for instance, that the angels rejoice when one sinner repents. I think it's hard to say that they likewise grieve when one sinner refuses to repent. We can only infer then that that Paul warns women not to reject this symbol of, of authority and headship. Because then they would be communicating their rebellion. And that in turn would only grieve and and offend these holy watching angels. All right, we're almost to the point where we can start making some big conclusions. So far, we're just trying to explain the text in its original setting. We got to cover a few more verses. Verse 11. He goes on and says, However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of man of woman. 
For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. And Paul inserts these two verses as a balance. Lest men get too carried away in thinking too much of their headship, that it implies superiority or greater worth or value, not so fast. It does not mean they're superior or even independent from their complement in birth and in marriage. God has made man interdependent from woman. This is a symbiotic relationship, you might say. Man's headship is derived from God, but it's to be used under God for the protection and the blessing and the care of the woman. And every man will give an account for how he used his headship before God. All right, the final verses, 13 through 16, he finishes and says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, and we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. And Paul finishes his appeal. And as he does so, we get three rapid fire closing arguments. First, he leans on their own sense of propriety. He tells them to judge for themselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? And back then, given this cultural norm, he could expect an overwhelming negative answer. No, of course not. It's not proper. It's what they all would have said. Second, he appeals to their natural inclinations. Where by and large, it's natural for women to have long hair and men to have short hair. Part of this is just genetics, where men have more hormones that slow and then stop the regrowth of hair. So I'm starting to find out myself. Let's not go there. But And in just about every culture throughout history, women have grown their hair longer, men shorter. His point that this cultural practice of head coverings is even reflected in nature away, it should be honored. And then third, Paul appeals to the widespread custom of the churches. He says, if any are inclined to be contentious, meaning women who, who still don't want to wear a head covering, they still want to reject this custom. Well, then his final argument is simply that, well, we, you're on your own. We have no other practice, nor have the churches. Women who cast off their head coverings will not find sympathy among the apostles or the churches. And that's that. He finishes, then he moves on to a new topic. All right, so far we've, we've exposited this passage on head coverings. And hopefully at the very least, you're starting to understand this passage better, what it means in its original setting. But we're still not done because we still have to ask the question of how much of this applies to today. It seems very foreign, but we know God's word is timeless and true. So how much applies? No doubt Paul feels strongly about women wearing head coverings. He's assembled this multi-pronged argument to convince the Corinthian women to carry on the custom. He's appealed to the Trinity, to creation, to angelology, to general revelation, to church practice. But that being said, I think the text makes clear that as strong as this argument is, Paul does not view this as a sin issue. Never does he issue a straightforward imperative commanding the women to wear a head covering. 
Rather, this is a long appeal designed to, to gain their cooperation. This does not appear to be an issue of apostolic command. And that's only confirmed by that last statement in verse 16. He says, if any women are inclined to be contentious, meaning even after listening to his whole argument, they still refuse to wear a head covering. Then what does he say? Does he say, well, then you're under the judgment of God. No, he says, well, we have no other custom. We have no other practice. That is not how the apostle Paul deals with black and white sin issues. There's no wiggle room to be contentious when you're dealing with black and white sin issues. When it comes to a sin issue, if you don't like it, either repent or be under judgment. That's what Paul would say. In the passage to follow, he's going to cover some of their abuses of the Lord's Supper. And Paul will take a very harsh and very firm tone with them. He does not praise them. There's no wiggle room to do communion your own way. You don't get to be contentious. Either you do it right or you're going to eat and drink judgment to yourself. It's a totally different tone. And that really gets in the difference between head coverings and the Lord's Supper, which gives us a perfect contrast. Because yes, both of these were customs of the early church. These are two customary practices. But one came from the Lord Jesus directly. The Lord Jesus created communion as a new custom. He gave it to the church. He chose the symbols. He infused them with meaning. Then he commanded the church to carry them on until he returns. That's entirely different from head coverings, which should not come from the Lord or even his apostles. That it was simply a custom the church took from the culture and applied it early on in the early church. Now, it was a good custom. And that is why Paul is so strongly arguing for it. He believed women in that day should wear head coverings while praying or prophesying. But the reason it was a good custom was not that it was in itself timeless or spiritual. Rather, the practice back then of women wearing head coverings genuinely reflected the timeless principles of submission to authority and male headship. That is the real issue. Paul does not make here the case that head coverings are a timeless tradition. What he's really getting at is just upholding the true timeless principles of headship, submission, gender roles. Those are not cultural. Underlying this whole text is the need for women not to usurp their husband's authority and for both genders not to swap roles. In that day, that meant carrying forward this tradition of the women, not the men, but the women of wearing this symbol of authority on their head. But the cultural applications and expressions of that principle are going to change. And in our study, did you notice that Paul never actually connects wearing head coverings to the created order? And back in verses 7 through 9 and elsewhere, he doesn't ground the cultural practice of wearing head coverings in creation. Rather, he grounds the principles of headship and submission to creation. That's the timeless part which must never be compromised. And indeed, that's the primary difference between this passage and 1 Timothy 2. That's where Paul, not indirectly, but directly forbids women from teaching or exercising authority in the church assembly. 
And there is no room to be contentious there. And there, Paul directly ties that prohibition to the created order, to creation and the fall. Teaching is a function of authority, and in God's created order, he simply entrusted that role to the head, which is going to be the man. Here in this passage, though, that there's nothing about a woman wearing a piece of cloth on her head that Paul ties directly back to creation. What goes back to creation is the fact that God made man and woman different from the beginning in form and function. And so whether you use the symbol of a head covering or not to represent that principle, and the point is the church must cling to these true timeless truths. So one author brought up a perfect parallel that really helps make sense of the distinction between timeless truth and the cultural application of that truth. Think back to Matthew 6, Jesus commands Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you fast, anoint your head with oil and wash your face. And back then the hypocrites, when they fasted, they purposely neglected their appearance, look all disheveled, that people would know they're fasting and then think they're super spiritual. But God hates phony righteousness. And so Jesus says, when you fast, you know what? Take care of yourself. Do what you would otherwise normally do to take care of your appearance because you're not doing this to be noticed by men. So here's the question. Today, if you're going to fast per what Christ said, does that mean you have to anoint your head with oil? That's what he said, right? When you fast, anoint your head with oil. But the answer is no, because you're making a clear distinction between the timeless principle and the cultural application. The obvious point of Christ's teaching is that when you fast before God, you're doing so to be noticed by God, not by men. Therefore, the point is just do what you would normally do to take care of yourself and your appearance so as not to draw attention to yourself. Back then, normal hygiene involved washing your head with oil, and your hair with oil, washing your face, didn't have shampoo, oil was their best bet. But cultural norms of cleanliness change. Today, if you were going to fast in honor of this principle, we would say, take a shower, shave, brush your teeth, put some gel in your hair, and tuck in your shirt. You know, like, look otherwise normal. That fulfills the principle of the passage, but just with a different cultural application. And it is the same with head coverings. The principles of male headship, submission, and gender roles still 100% apply to the church today. They're part of God's created order. Therefore, the church should honor them, should uphold them. Today, it's probably not going to look like women wearing a head covering in a church gathering. And that's largely, largely because this ancient symbol has entirely lost its meaning and significance in our culture doesn't mean anything anymore. The ancient head covering was very normal, customary, and it communicated to all subordination. Everyone knew why women were wearing head coverings. Today, it's entirely abnormal, and if anything, it would probably communicate humiliation. I think it's ironic. Some women probably shave their heads than wear a head covering in, in the church. Back then, Paul could get away with saying, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? And he could expect an overwhelming negative answer. That The vast majority would have said, no, of course it's not proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered. You ask that question today, and it's entirely the opposite. 
I think 99% of women wouldn't even understand the question, like, why would it ever be improper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? What does that even mean? So what happens when a symbol loses its symbolism? Well, if we have a timeless symbol based on creation or the Lord's command, then it is up to us to keep the symbol and then just educate people on what it means. That's what we have to do. And that's what we do with the Lord's Supper. That's why we often explain what the bread and the cup means. It's a timeless symbol. But nothing in this text indicates that head coverings were a timeless symbol. They're not timeless. And churches may opt to keep them or not keep them. Some churches today might try and replace this symbol and find a different symbol that, that points to the principles of headship and authority. But honestly, I don't think there's any equivalent symbol in our culture. Wearing a hat doesn't work. That's just usually a fashion statement. Wearing wedding rings don't work. That just that applies to husband and wife, and it, it doesn't communicate headship. No other symbol really fits today, but that's fine. We're not bound to symbols. Now, I will mention a very small number of churches today, they simply opt to just wear head coverings. And in choosing to do so, they do no wrong. So long as they claim this is not a sin issue, or rather that they're, they're not claiming this is a sin issue, because it's not. <clears throat> they're perfectly free if they want to revive this ancient symbol. And then it's going to be up to them to fight the uphill battle of just educating every member and every visitor what it means. And that's, that's fine. That's fair. Keep in mind, though, this is only meant to apply to women while praying or prophesying. So hopefully, if any church applies this today, they're at least trying to be consistent. However, in this instance, the church is not bound to any given symbol. The cultural symbol of headship may come and go. What we are truly bound to are the underlying principles of gender distinctions in form and function, which leads to male headship, female submission. And I think the most fitting way churches can honestly apply this today is not so much by creating a new symbol, but today, especially by not giving in to the blurred gender lines of our culture. Like never before in, in world history, our culture is, is not even blurring, but just erasing the lines between the genders. And it's not just in function, it's also now in form. It's not just women shaving their head to look like men, it's, it's people taking hormones and having surgeries to look like the other gender. But before God, it, it truly is an abomination because it signifies a complete rebellion against his order that he made from creation. He determines right and wrong, truthhood and falsehood. Our culture's gender confusion is really nothing more than the consequence of a finished rejection of God. Like we're all done here rejecting God. Let's move on. That's what we're witnessing. But the church today can obviously have no part of this. There's absolutely no gender confusion in the scriptures to God. There must be none in the church. This is a crystal clear issue. God created and calls men to act, look, and dress like men. And for women to act, look, and dress like women. And yes, yeah, some of those standards change with the culture. But every culture has natural distinctives between men and women. And at the very least, Christians should have absolutely nothing to do with our culture's blurred gender lines. And we have to at least represent and uphold what is good and right 
in the sight of our God. Even if that means the culture will crucify us over it, well, so be it. We're bound by God and his word to do and uphold what is true and right. All right, well, I told you that question would take a long time. It's really only one way to do it, just plow through the text. Uh, but it had to be done, and at the same time, hopefully just in that approach, you also learned you know, how we approach the scriptures, how we try and carefully handle the scriptures. We don't want to be capricious and pick and choose what we do based on our will, our tradition. Just let the text speak for itself, interpret it rightly, and, and we will do. We will, we will submit to what it says. <clears throat> All right, well, time's ticking, but I want to cover a little bit more ground. We've only gone through one question. But uh, there's, next, we have a, a triplet of questions. They, they came together. They'll go together. We're going to answer them back to back to back. So questions two, three, and four. I'll repeat them in case you're taking notes or whatever. But question two, should Christians condone watching VeggieTales since Phil Vischer, its creator, promotes evolution? I'll repeat it later. Question three, should Christians condone watching the Bible Project since Tim Mackey, its creator, holds distorted views on the atonement? Question four, should Christians condone singing hymns like It Is Well With My Soul, which was written by a man who died with heretical views? I'll repeat that. <clears throat> Question two, should Christians condone watching Veggie Tales since Phil Vischer, its creator, promotes evolution? Question three, could, should Christians condone watching the Bible Project? That's a series of online videos teaching the Bible in a really sharp way. He says, since Tim Mackey, its creator, holds distorted views on the atonement. And then four, should Christians condone singing hymns like It Is Well With My Soul, which is written by a man who died with heretical views. All right, so this person is concerned about consuming various forms of Christian media where the content is sound, the content is orthodox, but the background is not orthodox. So should Christians form their own little cancel culture <laughs> and cancel all resources of a given person because at some point in his life, he expressed unorthodox views? You chuckle at that, but you know, Christians have been perfecting the cancel culture for a long time before it was called the cancel culture with boycotts and this and that. Sometimes it's appropriate. And they get it right. Sometimes it's not appropriate. And they get it wrong. And first off, all three questions express real concerns. The creator of VeggieTales does hold to an old earth creation view. Tim Mackey, behind the Bible Project, he believes in a substitutionary atonement, but he denies the penal nature of the atonement, meaning he omits God's wrath and propitiation. Also, Horatio Spafford, who wrote, It is well with my soul. Later in life, Deviated greatly from the faith, became a universalist who believes everyone's going to heaven, even the devil, in the end. So, should we cancel all of these resources because while they themselves are orthodox, the, the background of the creator is anything but orthodox? What should we do? These questions intersect the level of separation Christians should have from the world, which has been asked since the beginning of the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, for example, tells us not to be bound together with unbelievers in partnership. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us to separate from professing believers who are living in unrepentant immorality. Somebody claims to be a Christian, but is living in unrepentant sin. We're, we're told not even to eat with that person. So there are times where we are called to separate. 
But this question is more nuanced. It's about consuming otherwise good materials, orthodox materials, but they just come from an author who has an unorthodox background at some point. So how do we handle that? And there's no Bible verse that directly answers that. Now, if you're going to look for rules or commands or one-size-fits-all statements from me, you're not going to get them. That's what paves the road to legalism. It should not surprise you that the answer to these questions is going to come by just applying biblical wisdom and maturity and discernment. What I can give you are biblical principles that need to be applied on a case-by-case basis. We can't spend another 40 minutes on these questions, but in the time we have left, let me equip you with some of the most relevant biblical principles to help you answer these questions for yourself. I'm going to give you four biblical principles to try and help you navigate these cultural issues. Given the theme of culture this morning, I think it's fitting. Four principles. First, consuming orthodox media with unorthodox background is lawful. It's kind of a mouthful, but consuming orthodox media with unorthodox background is lawful. We don't have time to do a full exposition of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, but on your own, go back, read the the previous three chapters. You were just in chapter 11. The three chapters that came before, Paul dealt with these types of issues. Wasn't talking about veggie tales, but pretty close. You know, in those chapters, Paul argues that it is lawful to eat meat sacrificed to idols. If that's the case, I think When you understand that, it's going to be hard to prove watching VeggieTales is sin. But just think, I mean, that is the ultimate example of a defiled background. You have meat, meat which is good. It's created by God to be good, but it has the ultimate defiled background. It has been sacrificed on a pagan altar in a worship service to a pagan god. That's about as defiled a background as you can get. But Paul argues for the mature Christian, like, we know better Idol is not a real thing. That, de- that, that deity is not a real thing. We have liberty to eat with a clear conscience for those who are mature. He argues that the act itself is lawful. And it's not sinful. And so it goes with consuming not meat, but media that has a, a less than savory background today. Now keep in mind, we're only talking about content that is good. We have little tolerance for rotten meat, for content that is itself heretical or misleading. We're only talking about content that is good. And there's more to be said, but I just include this principle to warn you again against the perils of legalism. Legalism always starts with with a good desire to uphold holiness and the righteousness of God. But when you get to, to start making your own little list of unlawful behavior based on your thoughts, not God's word, and you're actually usurping God's righteousness. We must beware that. Beware trying to make these questions black and white sin issues because they are not. Second principle, consuming orthodox media with unorthodox background may be profitable. It may be profitable where you would do it. You know, where's the proof text that says we must cancel a person's entire body of work and their every contribution to the church just because later in life they went astray or erred? I mean, if that's the case, think about it. We, we probably shouldn't have any of Solomon's writings in the Bible. 
Because later in life, he went pretty astray. I guess, should we cancel the book of Proverbs? But can God take material with suspect background and put it to good use? Think about it. He did it with the temple. Speaking of Solomon, you realize Solomon built God's temple with mostly pagan labor, lumber, and gold. But it was used in God's purposes. It became sanctified in God's use. Look, when we're dealing with Christian media, so we're talking art, music, literature, film, we're not dealing with scripture. There's not inspired scripture. All of these works will stand or fall on their own merit with varying levels of profitability. But if you find a resource that is orthodox, it, it accords with the scriptures, it's useful for renewing the mind, then the background of that resource does not by itself disqualify it. If it squarely represents God's truth, then the mature believer would have no trouble consuming it. Take, for example, the books of Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris is a well-known purity author in the early 2000s. But he recently went full apostate, completely denied the faith. But you know what? I still haven't burned all of his books. Why not? Because they're good. They're true. They're sound. They're orthodox. They're helpful. They have the genuine gospel. Now, granted, now I would read them with an added caution that unless these truths truly dwell in your heart, they do you no good. You become a Pharisee. But nonetheless, his old writings can still profit. The same would apply to ancient hymns written by those who later left the faith. They're still greatly profitable in renewing the mind with biblical truth, and the mature Christian is not going to choke on such background issues. Now, that's not the end of the story. Remember, I'm just giving you various principles that need to be variously applied with discernment. Sometimes it's good. It's fine to eat meat sacrificed to others or to idols, but it's while sometimes it might be lawful, other times it, it may not be profitable. You might choose, you know, actually, I don't, I don't think I should do that. So a third principle, third, consuming orthodox media with unorthodox background may not be profitable. It's not rocket science. I'm really just summarizing 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. But just because something is lawful doesn't make it profitable. And there are indeed many scenarios where you might determine that consuming such media is not profitable. First, you need to take into consideration whether you're making this decision for yourself or also for those under your authority. If this is just for yourself, then this question is purely a function of your own maturity and conscience. Is your conscience troubled by this pagan meat? Do you feel watching a Bible project video is just wrong now that you know the author has a, a weird atonement view? Even if you can't explain why it's wrong, does it just trouble your conscience? Well, you can't sin against your conscience. So for you, it's wrong. Don't consume that media. But if your decision here impacts others under you, then you also have to take into consideration their maturity level. The overriding principle in Paul's meat sacrifice to idols argument is that while we may have liberty, we never want to use that liberty at the expense of leading a weaker brother to sin against his conscience. We can't do that. In that case, we would rather abstain and deny ourselves our liberty. In addition, when considering the profitability of consuming media with suspect background, you have to take into consideration how likely those under you 
are to be influenced by these sources or these background issues. Let's say you have a somewhat immature, undiscerning believer under your authority. This could be your kids. This could be church members, someone in your small group. Just You have a, a less mature believer under you. So while you yourself might be mature enough and discerning enough to watch all the good Bible project videos on the, on the books of the Bible, and you're not going to be influenced by the author's views on the atonement at all, but you can't necessarily count on the fact that those under you will be so discerning and uninfluenced. You have to ask just how strong, relevant, and influential are these sources and their background issues. That's going to differ, but especially when making a decision for other people under your authority, those with varying levels of maturity and discernment, I think wisdom would say, better safe than sorry. While some content may be good, you definitely don't want to lead an unsuspecting, just undiscerning Christian into danger or to a, a bad source, a negative influence, a false teacher. In that case, you might better choose to avoid the resource altogether. You know, when it comes to ancient hymns, for example, their background is almost entirely unknown. It's irrelevant to our worship services. The focus is always on the present orthodox lyrics. And I can truly say I have no concerns for my church that someone's going to fall into universalism because they, they did a deep dive Google search on Horatio Spafford and his later sermons because we sang it as well with my soul one time. Even then, most of the historical records on these figures is incomplete and contradictory. To the contrary, I'm far more concerned with singing songs from Bethel music today, as an example. Because while some of their songs have orthodox lyrics, a lot of their songs do not. And Bethel as an organization has many serious issues and problems. But they are hugely influential in our culture. So you might say we could just choose to sing all their good songs, all the orthodox songs. But I still couldn't put it past some young, immature believer to think that because of that, we endorse Bethel's school of supernatural ministry. And I definitely don't want to lead a young, undiscerning believer to bad influences. Yes, all of this has to be played out on a case-by-case basis. But hopefully you're seeing some of the layers of discernment that are needed to, to gauge profitability. Well, you will decide for yourself and those under you uh, what to do. One last principle before our time is up. Fourth, don't financially support false teachers. Don't financially support false teachers. I'm not saying we should boycott every wicked corporation. I'm not actually called to do that and to totally leave the world and all uh, relations with the world. No, but we are called not to actively support those who claim Christ but teach another gospel. People who claim to be teachers in the church but teach another gospel, then we, we have to boycott their finances, so to speak. This comes directly from Second John, verses 7 through 11. John is talking about those back then who were denying the humanity of Jesus. He was not truly man. But John says, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. If you teach another Christ, that's another gospel. This is serious. And he says after that, verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who 
gives him a greeting, participates in his evil deeds. It's not talking about just saying hi. This is talking about the ancient practice of hospitality, which was customary and obligatory. But regarding an active false teacher, someone who is who's at work to spread a, another gospel, he says you, you must not support him in any way. In the ancient world, that involved not extending hospitality, not giving him a place to stay that night, not supporting him on his mission to spread this teaching. Now today, it's highly unlikely that a false teacher is going to come to your door looking for a place to stay for the night. But I think a fair application here would be to not directly support a false teacher financially in any way. Don't buy their music. Don't buy their videos. Don't help them get paid royalties. Don't contribute to their ad revenue. If someone is using a ministry to actively spread a false gospel, uh, you should not contribute to that. And all Christians need to be wise and discerning as we live in the world, but not of the world. You have to avoid these two pitfalls. You have to avoid the pitfall of radical isolation from the culture, because then you will not be an effective light to the world. We also have to avoid the pitfall of radical immersion in the culture, because then you will not be the salt of the earth, preserving the world from decay. You have to walk this balance, and that applies even to consuming Christian media in this this Christian subculture. I guess I better finish by at least telling you how I myself would answer these questions and apply them to this church or to those under me. I would apply these principles to these three questions. At first, I have no problem condoning what I know of veggie tales. I don't think any of the episodes actually teach old earth creationism. And even if they did, I don't fear my kids encountering that. That would actually just be an opportunity for me to teach them about other views. I don't fear that. If you shield your kids from everything, how do you expect them to ever be discerning enough on their own to interact with the culture when they grow up? I'd rather have those engagements when they're in my home when I got a chance. Second, I never actually knew of the background of Tim Mackey behind the Bible Project up until now. You know, most of the Bible introduction videos they have, I think, are excellent and really well done. I would have no problem watching them for myself. I'm in no danger of being misled by the creator's aberrant atonement background views. That being said, though, messing with the atonement is a big deal. Uh, I don't know all the details, but you start messing with the atonement, it will lead to heresy pretty quickly. And I can't count on the fact that everyone at this church, for example, won't come under Mackey's influence, because he does a lot of teaching and preaching and podcasts on the side, if they perceive that we as a church support the Bible project. And therefore, although lawful for me leading a church, I would no longer endorse the Bible project as a church resource. Lawful, you decide what you do for you and your family, but as a church, I wouldn't endorse it as a church resource. There, there are many ancient hymns we sing from authors who had suspect backgrounds who later left the faith. But I personally have no concerns here. We sing them because their content expresses rich words of truth. And unlike contemporary songwriters with unorthodox backgrounds, the influence of these old dead hymn writers is zero. You know, by the way, Spafford wrote It Is Well With My Soul at a time when he was completely orthodox in the faith. He only went a little weird later on. But if there was somehow a resurgence in popularity of Spafford's later false teachings, then we would reevaluate whether or not we should sing that song. In all, we will continue to evaluate 
the praise songs we sing on a case-by-case basis. All right, well, that will do it for our time today. You know, I think these are all excellent questions. These are necessary questions. They're not new questions. These are the types of questions, though, that are asked by every new generation in the church, rising up, entering the world, seeing the church in the world, just having these natural questions. They are good. They need to be asked. And let's commit to continue seeking the clarity that always comes from God's timeless scriptures. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, we exalt your name, Lord, again, for your scriptures, your timeless, profitable truth. We thank you for the guidance you've given your church. You've left us with everything we need for for life, for godliness, for serving you, knowing you, living in this world. You've given us above all your Holy Spirit to dwell within us that we might uh, test the spirits, that we might be wise and discerning. Help us to renew our minds to do just that. And we thank you also for your more sure word. We don't need whim or experience or emotion to tell us right and wrong. We just need your more sure word. So fill us with your word. May we truly be like Bereans who diligently search and just study to know what have you said. And there we are bound. There we will do no other. Help us to be committed to the authority and sufficiency of your scriptures. If we learn nothing else this morning, maybe that I have a high view of your word. We have all that we need in it. Where there we find God and his son Christ, the Savior, who died and rose again for us. So may we always be committed to your word. Help us to treasure it in our hearts that we may not sin against you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.